Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, film historian Avi Hearn, who joins me as we celebrate one of the most successful costume epics ever released by Hollywood, 1952's Ivanhoe which was not only the biggest box office hit for MGM that year, but it was nominated for Best Picture, losing to Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. Go figure that one. Welcome, Avi. Steve, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Well, you and I have been talking about this movie for probably 20 years or more. Uh, Avi and I actually met on on, on a very typical L.A. meeting place. We met on (laughs) on a game show. We were both uh, contestants on the Joker's Wild, and although we didn't face each other, we were able to root for each other. I did terribly, and Avi, you did well, didn't you? Uh, I won six or seven games, yeah. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, and I was eventually beaten by a handyman. I mean, go figure. (laughs) Now, you grew up, as I recall, your father managed a drive-in theater? Yeah, one time he actually managed two of them simultaneously, and he had to um, drive between them each evening. And this was was in in New York, right? Yeah, in Westchester County. So were your first movie experiences at a drive-in? Well, the first film I ever remember seeing was Bambi, and I was probably two. And uh, that was not... That was before my dad managed drive-ins. Uh, I think in, in, the, in the 1950s, he actually ma- managed what were called hardtop theaters. It's a regular theater. Um, and then we moved first to Hartford, Connecticut, where he managed a drive-in called The Meadows, one of the earliest drive-ins in the U.S. And then in Westchester, where he did, <clears throat> where he managed, those two he managed simultaneously were called The Hollowbrook and The Starlight. And how often would you go out to the theater to watch movies? That's a good question. Not that often. Um, you know, when you're, when you're a very small kid, obviously your parents are looking for something appropriate to take you to. And um, there probably weren't that many films that they probably figured, they figured that I would understand. And also back then, my dad, my, 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 mom, my mother didn't drive at that time. So if I, if I was going, they would have to, like the whole family would have to go at once. And since he had to be at the theater much, much earlier than the uh, audiences would arrive, he, um, you know, we would have to be there for like a couple of hours before, before the, the show started. So that was just something we didn't do that often. And also I'm remembering, of course, that the idea of the kitty matinee, which was a popular feature in hardtop theaters, certainly on the West Coast, uh, obviously could not exist in drive-in worlds because obviously you could only show the movie after dark. Yeah, and, of course, and, and generally, of course, um, drive-ins were open, especially in the East, drive-ins were open only in the summer. So the, 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 the days were long, the nights came late, and um, you know, it's not really conducive to having young kids at a show because the show might not start till shortly before 9, or nine in the evening. What was your go-to hardtop theater of choice in those days? Uh, well, I, well, in those days, again, I was too young, but from the late 60s on, when I was in high school, uh, I would uh, 
go to our local Paramount Theater, and I saw some of my, some of my favorite movie going experiences uh, were there. Um, I saw everything yeah. from a uh, uh, hard day's night to one million years BC to fantastic voyage to, uh, and that's Hartford. No, that's in Peekskill, New York in Westchester County. Oh, so you, you moved down to New York then. I got it. Got it. Very good. So where do you think you first saw Ivanhoe? Oh, I certainly saw it on television. Uh, and, and back then, uh, usually it was cut. Um, and it took a long time before. I mean, I don't know if I ever if I saw it complete until I got the the the, the uh, video cassette. Probably the end of the nineteen seventies. Yeah, it's funny, you know, uh, uh, when VHS cassettes came out, it literally was the first VHS cassette I bought. Well, I was oh. a beta man. I'm sorry. I was a beta man. You were a beta man. Okay, so I got a VHS and I got that the same day I got Gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, so I had my two, two of my favorites there. But I think, you know, I have fond memories of seeing Ivanhoe. And I'm hoping a lot of you who are listening uh, love this movie as much as, as Avi and I do because uh, it's just, it's become an evergreen for me. I watch it very often. But I, I remember seeing it on the CBS early show which i believe was after school it was like 4 30 in the afternoon and i have fond memories of remembering just how much detail was presented in this movie the, the I, I one of the first things i remember were the the english uh guards when rebecca is on trial for witchcraft the way the guards looked, I'd never seen helmets like that before. It was a whole new look. I think that uh, that was one of the things I remember most. And of course, the jousting sequences. Um, let's talk a little bit about this movie. I mean, this is 1950, well, it was released in 1952. It was in production in 1951. I think it was literally shooting when I was born. Uh, so this is kind of my birth year movie. Uh, it was a big, uh, a big, a big production for uh, MGM, but it was filmed entirely in England, which I guess was a, a move by the studio to save money in those days. Correct? Well, yes, there was something called the ED plan back then, which was a, uh, a program in place the British government put in place uh, that allowed um, that subsidized the production of, of foreign productions in, in the UK. Um, if there was a, a, a certain number of um, British personnel employed in making the film, uh, it could be cast, it could be crew. I mean, uh, altogether, it had to be a, a certain minimum. Um, but what's actually kind of interesting about the film is uh, the film was actually announced uh, in the late '40s uh, by RKO. They were going to make it, and I don't know how serious they were about making it because about ten years earlier they'd been kind of burned by um, the production costs, the overruns on um, uh, Gunga Din. George Stevens just kept shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting and, and the costs mounted. And that year, RKO made The Hunchback of Notre Dame, so they made two big costume pictures the same year, and they were kind of leery of costume pictures. But it was a pet project of Dory Sherry, who was running RKO at the time. Then he moved to uh, MGM and became head of production, 
And the film was, you know, Ivanhoe's obviously, it's a 19th century novel. It's not on the copyright, it's the public domain. But uh, Shari brought his enthusiasm for the movie with him, and that's how it got made at MGM. Yeah, I was reading some of the IMDb notes on this, and they're interesting sometimes. I, don't, I, I, I hope they're based on fact, but they did mention that there was some talk at one point of Errol Flynn playing uh, Wilfred of Ivanhoe. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, the thing is, if Robert Taylor was too old, and he was too old, Flynn was certainly too old, four years older than, than, uh, than Taylor. The thing about, about the movie is, apart from Elizabeth Taylor, everybody in that film was way too old. Um, well, it's, so, it's so funny. One of the comments in the quotes from Robert Taylor was uh, he, he refers to the three movies he made for director Richard Thorpe, uh, Ivanhoe, uh, Knights of the Round Table, and The Adventures of Quentin Durward. He calls them his iron jockstrap roles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously the studio started to see him in those roles after the great success of Cool Bottas. Um you know, from what I read, man, there's some biography I once read of, of Taylor, and basically he was much happier doing westerns. Well, he uh, he was born Spangler Arlington Brew, which has to be one of the more extraordinary names given <laughs> to a human being on this planet. Um, uh, it After be, Earth, yeah. It doesn't actually sound like a human name. It sounds like some kind of uh, potion. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he was born August 5th, 1911, so he's in his early 40s, uh, whereas I believe Wilfred of Ivanhoe in the novel is in his 20s, right, Avi? Yeah, he's about 25. I mean, you know, Ivanhoe and Prince, I mean, for, as I say, everybody in the movie is is too old. Uh, Guy Rolf plays uh, Prince John. I mean, obviously, he's a real historical figure, and he was 25 when this takes place. The story takes place in 1192 AD. So, um, you know, he and Ivanhoe should, should be about the same age. It's, you know, the thing about Taylor is, and I, I, I would have to say I'm a Robert Taylor fan. I, I've all, I, I think I first discovered him in the World War II uh, film Batan, which was a big success for the, during the war. And then, of course, as you know, uh, you and I both being Miklas Rosia fans, I'm always, I've always been a big fan of Valley of the Kings. Um, but he, he, his life later uh, was under a big cloud because he was one of the friendly witnesses during the Hollywood, uh, uh, un, un, the un, un American Committee's attack on Hollywood. Well, you know, under a cloud, obviously, from the point of view of uh, those who were, you know, who, who, who uh, were victims of the blacklist. Um, you know, because the, 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 the Hollywood power structure was conservative, so he didn't suffer from that at all. Um, you know, you know, looking back by people, you know, we have we have a a more um, uh, nuanced view of it now. You know, the, the people who survived the blacklist, you know, they don't look on on Taylor fondly. But at the same time, I mean, Taylor Taylor basically was just an, you know an exponent of his political beliefs. I mean, as far as I know, he didn't name any names, so he wasn't really despised uh, for, for I mean, people's politics or people's politics. Uh, there were other people who were, who were, you know, who were much, much more uh, uh, reviled than Taylor. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, people do separate uh, the actor's work from his politics, and certainly Taylor was always an interesting actor. Um, I, I kind of agree with you. I think he, he is he's older for the role, but I thought he was very good in the role of Wilfred of Ivanhoe. Um, I, I, you're right, Flynn was even older, so probably not a good choice at the time. Can you think of somebody at the time of, uh, of Ivanhoe that would have been more appropriate, perhaps? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if, if they had borrowed a young uh, guy who was about, uh, how old would he have been? About 30, uh, named Charlton Heston. He might have been pretty good in the, in the role. Um, obviously, he was still growing into the Charlton Heston we know. I mean, he was a little little awkward at that age. You know, he, well, he, the, he, the, ir the irony is you've picked an actor who starred in the movie that beat Ivanhoe. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, <laughs> And I mean, that's that, and that's the movie that put him on the map. I and mean, he'd only done one other professional film before that, uh, Dark City. Um, but you know, you know who actually, because I mean, I, one, of my, one of my objections to Taylor is he's not only too old, he's too American. And uh, there's an actor who, right at the beginning of his career, who was about, I'm not sure, quite sure, I mean, you would know, Steve, you'd probably call up the, the, his, his exact age off the top of your head. Uh, no, not never a favorite actor of mine, but very British, and uh, there's an irony in this. And it's a, a young guy named Roger Moore, who, you know, and the irony is, of course, that uh, a few years later he would star in a British-made TV series of Ivanhoe, which is my first exposure to the character when I was a kid. Interesting. I, I, I you know, I. It's so funny because I'm so tainted by my feeling about him as James Bond because I've always found uh, Roger less of a physical actor and more of a light comedian who was good with a, you know, a good witty line. Uh, but, you know, that, that you're right. He would probably have been an interesting choice. There were probably a number of British actors at that time who could have been interesting uh, Ivanhoe's. I wonder if Sean Connery could have been an, an interesting Ivanhoe. What do you think? Well, I mean, at, at that time, I mean, he was still like a, a bodybuilder. I mean, he wasn't really an actor. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he certainly would not have been in the mix. And, and uh, you know, it was, was, was going to be 10 years before he became a star. Yeah. No, R Richard Burton could have been interesting. Uh, he was uh, uh, under contract to Fox by then, I believe. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, Taylor, Taylor uh, does, uh, I think he's very heroic in this film. Um, the other actors are, are all have interesting stories. Now we we get um, Joan Fontaine is the Lady Rowena, who's the ward of uh, of uh, Cedric. of Cedric uh, Ivanhoe's father, and I guess Joan Fontaine was not a first choice for the role, correct? I did, you know, I, I haven't heard that. I mean, frankly, I've always found her. I mean, she's she's a good appropriate age for Robert Taylor. I mean, she was about. Um, well, she's. I'll tell you exactly what she was born October twenty second, five years younger, nineteen seventeen. So she was thirty five when she. Yeah. Made. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, just so we know who she is, Joan Fontaine's real name is Joan de Beauvoir de Havilland, and she is Olivia de Havilland's sister. Good sister, a year younger. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, yeah. I was going to say, ironically, of course, that Olivia de Havilland played uh, Lady Marion in The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is, you know, the same story, the same, you know, ransoming Richard, you know, to, to save uh, to save the Saxons in England. And Joan Fontaine is the only actor to ever win an Oscar 
in an Alfred Hitchcock film. That's true. I mean, actually, there are only two major Oscars ever won by Hitchcock film. One is Best Picture you know, for Rebecca, which starred Fontaine in 1940. And the other one is, you know, Fontaine her, herself winning uh, uh, an Oscar in, uh, in Hitchcock's Suspicion. I guess, it, uh, you know, in terms of who was, who was thought of before that, I know that um, there, at one time there was a thought that Deborah Carr would join Taylor obviously they had just played together nicely in Quo Vadis that wasn't unusual to think that they could have played together in uh, Ivanhoe um, it's interesting you know uh, Avi has uh, has uh, found the original screenplay uh, for Ivanhoe at least one of the early drafts written by the uh, the screenwriter uh, Marguerite Roberts, who was actually blacklisted at that time and couldn't get credit on the script with Noel Langley. So uh, I was reading it the other day, and uh, the portrait of Ro uh, portrait of Rowena in the original screenplay was a lot more of a lusty lady. She seemed like, uh, I found her to be a much more uh, passionate and romantic character, whereas Joan played her a little bit more laid back. Would you think? Yeah, I agree. And, and you yeah. You know, obviously, the studio, it's, it's pretty clear the studio really wanted to see this as a showcase for Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, if they if they pulled back on the characterization of Rowena as played by uh, Fontaine, it was probably for that reason. They didn't want this to, want this to turn into a, into a cat fight. So, um, you know, you, you've got, you've got, uh, you know the staid Rowena, who's the you know, the old childhood love of Ivanhoe, and then you have um, and you, then you have Rowena. But the thing is that 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 apart from uh, apart from Rowena, Ivanhoe himself is probably the least interesting character in the whole story. I mean, the the character really is just the beating heart of, of, of everything. The character you really feel for is Rowena, um, even though Taylor did not, Elizabeth Taylor did not have a very high regard for the movie. She didn't think it was very important. She didn't think she might, might just like the part. I have to believe it at some level because I mean, she's, the woman had a, you know, obviously had a fabulous career and you have to, and you have to be pretty smart and tough to, to survive in this business, especially at the level of which she did for so many decades. She must've realized that she was getting, you know, when, when they gave her the script and she, she was under contract, she had to do what they, what they, you know, the studio demanded of her. Um, but she was getting the best part of the movie. Um, you mentioned earlier that all the characters are too old, but Elizabeth Taylor at 20, when she made this, she She's was the right. right. Yeah, she, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, Robert Taylor's old enough to be your father. And, uh, you know, that, that's a problem. I mean, you know, I mean, you can look at, you can look at films like, you know, most of uh, Cary Grant's films in the fifties, uh, and sixties, uh, or, or Fred Astaire's films or, uh, Jimmy Stewart's films, and they were—they were always their, their female leads were all, almost all of them young enough to be their daughters, and maybe you can get away with it—the kind of movies they made. But here, it's just a little—it's a little sticky. Yeah, well, you know, um, if I have a choice between Joan Fontaine and Elizabeth Taylor, it's kind of a no contest. <laughs> but uh, that's not the way. Um, 
Sir Walter Scott actually wrote the uh, the book. Uh, the well, book just... Which would not be the case if Deborah Carr had played Rowena, because then now now you've got and it's kind of like North by Northwest. I mean, one of the reasons that they cast James Mason as Van Damme is that you have uh, Eva Marie Saint between these two men, Cary Grant, you know, Cary Grant, Roger Thornhill, and and Van Damme. And if Van Damme is played by someone who is not as suave and British as Cary Grant, you don't really believe that you can be torn between the two of them. And I think Ivanhoe kind of has that problem because like, you know, if you're going to choose between, as you say, between Elizabeth Taylor and, and Joan Fontaine, I mean, it's not like you have to flip a coin or anything and you know, you know which way you're going. Well, you know, whether she liked the movie or not, Elizabeth Taylor is very good in the role and she certainly, she certainly plays it believably. Um, Going down the list of people in the movie, you've got George Sanders. Even older. Uh, I should say the Academy Award winning George Sanders because he had recently won an Oscar for All About Eve. He was, um, uh, George Sanders was born on July 3rd, 1906. So he was about 46 at this time. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, in looking at the history of George Sanders before we get into his character, uh, he was married to both Magda and Zsa Zsa Gabor at one point, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but Sanders plays Brian Dubois Gilbert, who is a Norman knight. I guess in the in the original Scott novel, uh, Bois Gilbert is not a Norman. He's a knight Templar. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I haven't read the novel since I was in high school. Or college, one of the two. So I don't really don't remember, but 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 knights temple. I mean, for the most part, I mean most knights, most knights who are in the confidence of the of, of certainly the kings of England were going to be Normans. I mean they're, they're, that Saxons were not typically uh, motivated to go out and fight for a, for a Norman king. We should we should talk a little bit about the actual history of this period. Um, this is the time of the Crusades, so Richard the Lionheart. Uh, has joined many of the great uh, uh, monarchs of Europe to head for the Holy Land, and he took a number of his knights with him and uh, kind of left his country on its own, and his brother, I guess his younger brother, John, uh, kind of usurps the throne. And then on the way back from the Holy Land, Richard is, uh, is uh, captured by the Austrians and held for ransom. And obviously this movie, just like you said, Adventures of Robin Hood, deals with England at a time when their king is not at home. Uh, and the Normans are, are basically taking over. The Saxons are not in power. The, 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 the country had been invaded by France, Normandy, in, 19, in, 19, in 1066. So the Normans were pretty much running the country. I mean, it's just, you know, it's one of those parenthetical things that, that John was born exactly 100 years after the Norman conquest. He was born in 1166. Oh, very good. Very good. And I think, didn't we just read a story recently that they found the grave of Richard the Lionhearted in a parking lot? Uh, it was Richard III. Oh, Richard III. We're, okay. we're, we're off by about uh, 200, you know, 300 years. Oh, sorry. Okay, I'm a little uh, light <laughs> in my... Well, there's my... a new movie about that. I forget what it's called, but it's, it's a new movie coming out. It's kind of like a, a comedy about it. About a woman who who's like becomes convinced that there's you know, she's figured out where the grave of Richard III is, and, you know, nobody believes her. And it's, it's coming at any time now. I just can't remember what it's called. I saw the trailer. 
Uh, well, George Sanders obviously plays Brian Dubois Gilbert, and he is the villain of the movie. He basically uh, is headed to a challenge match eventually with Ivanhoe. They certainly joust together in, uh, in one of the great sequences, uh, the jousting tournament at Ot Ashby. And his co-villain, both of whom are working for Prince John, as Avi mentioned, uh, played by Guy Rolfe, is uh, another British actor, Robert Douglas. Robert Douglas uh, was born Robert Douglas Finlayson, uh, born November 9th, 1909, so he's about uh, third, uh, 43 during this movie. Uh, I like Robert Douglas. I, I remember him from two films other than Ivanhoe. I remember him from uh, the remake of The Prisoner of Zenda, uh -huh where he plays uh, uh, the, uh, another usurper who's trying to take over the throne from the character played Prince by... Michael. I'm sorry? Prince Michael. Prince Michael, exactly. And, and uh, Prince Michael's fellow uh, conspirator is, of course, James Mason's uh, Rupert of Henson? Henshaw, yes. Henshaw, exactly. Well, what's, then, in, what's interesting is that um, both... Uh, Prisoner Zenda and Ivanhoe were, were made by MGM in the same year. And the same year, MGM also made Scaramouche and Plymouth Adventure. And it's an extraordinary tribute to the, you know, to the resources of a major legacy film studio like that. They could mount at least four really, really big costume pictures at the same time and get them made and make them efficiently. Now, Prisoner... Was Prisoner of Zenda shot partially in England as well, and part of Edie? No, it was shot 100% in, uh, in California. In California, got it, got it. Uh, and then Robert Douglas, the year after he portrays uh, Hugh de Brassy, who is Bois Gilbert's confederate, uh, he was in another one of my favorites, a Richard Burton World War II movie called The Desert Rats, directed by Robert Wise, where he plays an Australian uh, general. And uh, it's a very sympathetic role, and I think in many of Robert Douglas's roles, he's not playing sympathetic. And I was reading that uh, later on, uh, he became a very prominent television director in Hollywood. Yes, he was, he was quite successful as a director. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, back in, in, in the days, in, in the mid-50s, when the 1948 Paramount Consent Decree that basically forced the studios to divest themselves of their... Uh, the theater chains and the advent of television caused the studios to start dropping contract actors uh, because they just didn't want to spend the overhead on it anymore because their, their revenues were declining, audience number of people who went to see the movie, go to the movies every week were going down. So, um, you know, uh, a lot of some people like, like Robert Douglas, like Dick Powell, uh, went into directing because they just saw it as being a, a steadier form of, of, uh, you know, of income and, and artistic expression. Uh, what's interesting about Douglas is that um, the first part like that he did was uh, playing the Duke de Lorca in the Errol Flynn uh, Adventures of Don Juan, 1948. And you can kind of see a direct line between the, part, the parts that Basil Rathbone used to play and then when he got too old, Robert Douglas started playing the same parts as suave British villains in Hollywood costume pictures. And eventually, uh, those parts were taken over by people like, um, you know, uh, uh, Alan Rickman and Gary Oldman. I mean, there's always, there's always uh, work for British actors 
to play villains in costume pictures. Well, he's he's uh, very good. And of course, his character Debrassi has a thing for Rowena, as Bois Gilbert has a thing for Rebecca, the Elizabeth Taylor character. I think the comic heart of Ivanhoe, and there is comedy in, or I should, yeah, there's a touch of comedy, not really comedy, but there is a bit of wit, is certainly Emmeline Williams' character, Wamba the Jester, or the Wamba the, uh, what do we call him, Wamba the Fool. Yes. Uh, and uh, he's one of my favorite characters. Uh, he has uh, some of the funniest lines in, in the movie, and his enthusiasm is, is, is great. Emmeline Williams uh, was Welsh. He was born November 26, 1905, so he was about 46, 47 when this came out. Uh, Wamba's just a fun character. I think that um, when they started to write the screenplay ad adaptation of the Scott novel, I guess there was another uh, of the servants in Cedric's house that was a major character, but they combined him into Wamba. Well, Emily Williams was, um, you know, he, he, was, he was a very good actor. He did, he did quite a few films. But he was also a very fine playwright in his own right. I mean, he wrote, for instance, uh, The Corn is Green, which was made into a movie with uh, Betty Davis in the 40s. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess some of, most of the wit in the movie is placed in his mouth. And, uh, and it, 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 it's pretty organic to the story. It's, and and some, of the, I guess some of that wit is um, kind of pointed. I mean, for instance, there's a scene early on when uh, Isaac of York shows up in uh, at Cedric's banquet hall seeking shelter, and Cedric ha allows him to be admitted. I Isaac of York, being a, a, a Jewish merchant who turns out to be the father of Rebecca, and uh, Boisguilbert uh, basically uh, immediately expresses his disdain for Jews. He just you know hates. The idea, he says, you know, I, I you know, I, I share no, uh, I share no roof over my head with an infidel. And um, Wamba says, why not, Sir Knight? For every Jew you show me who is not a Christian, I will show you a Christian who is not a Christian. And that really goes to the heart of one of the things that makes Ivanhoe stand out among really just about any other costume picture, like Knights in Armor picture, is that it has a serious spine in terms of its story about anti-Semitism. Um, and um, it, it's not afraid to express those things, which a lot of Hollywood studios might've been. And then that's, I, I think there's, there's the influence of Dory Sherry with that. Under Louis B. Mayer, I don't think they would have, they would have done that. But with, with Sherry, I think he basically gave them the go ahead to retain the, um, you know, what Sir Walter Scott had put in the novel about anti-Semitism. Yeah, Hollywood um, seldom dealt with Jewish issues or anti-Semitism. I always thought it was ironic that the one movie that was made during this period uh, was at Fox, Gentleman's Agreement, which was greenlit by Daryl F. Zanuck, who was not Jewish. That's true. I mean, the name Zanuck, you would, you know, people would, would think he was, was a Jewish mogul, but he was not. He was a Methodist from Wahoo, Nebraska. Yeah. And... Uh, but actually, there were two your, two films about, about anti-Semitism the same year, uh, 1947. There was that, Gentleman's Agreement. There was also Crossfire at, uh, at RKO. RKO. Also between the two films, Crossfire actually is the one that doesn't date as badly. It's, it's really a much more interesting movie. Um, Gentleman's Agreement, especially at that moment, that cringe-making that cringe 
pre-inducing moment where Gregory Peck goes, I know what I'll do, I'll pretend to be Jewish. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, so it's kind of like, it, it has, it's a film that has kind of has its, its intentions on its sleeve. And, it, and it's uh, a little, everything's a little too obvious, especially to look, when you look back on it now. Rounding out the cast, um, well, Norman Woolen plays King Richard. Oh, that's very mm-hmm. much a cameo role because he just pretty much pops up for a second in the beginning and comes in the end. I, 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 the only other film I've seen Norman Woolen in was he's actually in the, in the beginning of The Guns of Navarone mm-hmm. playing a British officer in uh in uh i believe they're on uh, crete uh or one of those islands um also in, in quo vadis in quo vadis and then of course then you also have um uh the actor who plays front to buff and why am i forgetting his name uh, uh francis de wolf francis de wolf thank you and i i've always been a francis de wolf fan because he plays <laughs> Vavra, the gypsy leader in the second James Bond movie from Russia with Love. Hmm. Here, here he's playing uh, the, th- the third of, uh, of King John's five priceless, you know, his most uh, revered knights, the other being uh, uh, Malvoisin and De Vip. Uh, and I can't remember the actress. Philip De Vipon. There you go. There you go. So um, the movie gets a sign, I believe Mar- uh, Marguerite um, Roberts. Uh, Margaret Roberts gets the assignment. Now, w- was she the person who wrote the first draft, Avi? The first draft? I mean, I don't know how many drafts they went through. I mean, I really have no idea. Uh, you know, I think one would have to go into MGM's production records to find that out. Um, well, I, I read the draft uh, that you acquired, and what I discovered is that the bones of the movie are all there. I think all the sequences are pretty much the way they should be. But her uh, her quoting from the, it seems like she took a lot of the book and put it in her screenplay. Uh-huh. And I find that that kind of flowery writing, that English prose, um, just was very distracting. And my, my guess was they took a look at that draft and even though the physic- physicality of the movie was there, that the dialogue was all wrong. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I and mean, that, that, that's among the hardest things to do with a costume picture. Um, you know, especially when you're talking, you're talking about um, Sir Walter Scott. I mean, a novel that dates in the early 19th century. Um, just the prose itself is, is unwieldy you know, to modern sensibilities. Um, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to write, write, read the book, and the, the book just is impossible for me to get through. It's just, just too... <laughs> way too wordy and i think that they brought in noel langley i'm not sure when they brought in noel langley now noel langley is an interesting choice to write ivanhoe because one of noel langley's great credits is a little movie called the wizard of oz (laughs) and and of course the wizard of oz is filled with wit and um I, i have a feeling a lot of the wit from ivanhoe was langley because it certainly wasn't present in uh margaret um Margaret Roberts draft. Uh, by the way, Margaret Roberts later wrote a little film called True Grit. So she's, you know, she's well favored, has a lot of film credits, and was one of the more successful female screenwriters of her era. Well, what actually was kind of interesting about True Grit is that it, among John Wayne's 1960 westerns, uh, it's a couple of notches above, you know, because John, most of John Wayne's 1960 films 
he was basically, you know, the Westerns, he was basically making the same movie over and over and over again. Uh, yeah. True Grid is, is just a little bit, has a little bit more polish, it's a little bit more ambitious. And the dialogue in the film, especially the dialogue for Kim Darby, is almost like period dialogue. I mean, it, it's, it's not what you typically find in a film like that, uh, of that time. Um, and it's part of the film's charm. So they go into production England. I think that another big plus um, for Ivanhoe is shooting in, I guess they shot it in Scotland as well as England. Uh, the, the castle was a, uh, Torkelstone, I believe, was a Scottish castle. Well, it was a set built. It was shot at MGM's Borumwood Studio, which they had opened right. up. But didn't they actually go to a real castle? Or... No, that was that was a set. And in oh, fact, really? it, it was so realistic. It it was pretty amazing. Um, it was it was later it was reused in uh, Knights of the Round Table, and then it was used in a uh, a film that my cousin produced called uh, The Warriors, which is also known as The Black Avenger, which starred Errol Flynn uh, and Peter Finch in the mid fifties. Well, the physicality of the movie is just terrific. I remember interviewing George Leach when I was doing my James Bond book, and George Leach was a stuntman, and he told me that he and Bob Simmons, one of their earliest jobs was riding war, horse, war horses for the Ashby uh, yeah. tournament. And uh, certainly... Uh, what's cool about the Ashby tournament is that these guys are getting knocked off horses, and these are not digital horses. Those were real horses. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty brutal, but you know, what they did is they actually attached a wire to each of the riders who had to be unhorsed by uh, the opposing uh, knight's lance. And so at the moment, the, the, well, the lances themselves were actually telescoping. They, had, they were spring-loaded so that when they hit the target, they hit the other knight, they would collapse instead of actually uh, knocking him off the horse. What pulled him off, what, 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 did, send, what did send them off the horse was a, a wire, a hidden wire uh, attached to vests, to harnesses that they were wearing. So at the moment they reached the end of the wire, they're yanked off the horse. And that's it. And it's the exact moment that the point of the lance touches their chest. So um, obviously it had to be choreographed very, very carefully to, to make those two align so it would be convincing and they of course did a magnificent job because it, it, it just works perfectly and it, the, the battle sequences are are terrific later on when um when um loxley's bowman assault torkelstone there's a lot of there's a lot of epic filmmaking here this is not done with 10 extras on a tv budget they had hundreds of extras and they all look good in character they're they, they're firing a lot of arrows i did find it interesting that uh, in the notes on IMDb, uh, one of the stunt guys was a guy named Jack Churchill. Do you know about Jack Churchill? I do not. Jack, Ch <laughs> this is an interesting one. Jack Churchill during World War II, I guess he was a soldier, and he went into battle carrying a longbow and a broadsword. <laughs> and apparently... He actually killed a German uh, soldier, a sentry, with his longbow, and I guess he's credited being the last British soldier to kill someone with a bow and arrow. I was just going to say, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but apparently a lot of those sequences that, uh, that involved archery and you know, the, the ability, 
I always heard that uh, you've heard this story that in the Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn classic, they had a guy who was such an accurate, uh, an accurate archer that he would literally fire a live arrow at a person with a wood plank in front of them. Oh yeah, well I mean that um, that was Howard Hill, and he actually plays the captain of archers at the, in the archery tournament. Um, yes, he was just a master archer and he could hit anything at any time, but and, and, and to demonstrate just how, um, uh, how precise he was and how much they trusted him, um, in the scene in Robin Hood where, uh, right at the beginning where Sir Guy is about to hit much the Miller's son with his truncheon, uh, this truncheon is made of solid steel and I own it. And, um, it had originally it had eight flanges on it, six flanges on it. Now it has only five. And I had a suspicion. I wasn't sure. And it wasn't until the film was issued on Blu-ray where I could uh, slow it down and look at it frame by frame um, uh, with, you know, with enough sharpness, uh, enough resolution in the image that my suspicions were confirmed that when, God, when, when um, Basil Rathbone raises the truncheon in the air, and it shot out of his hand, the arrow hit the flange and knocked the flange off. So for the rest of the movie, uh, if you look closely, you can see that they, they replaced the flange, but it's probably cardboard or, or, or a piece of wood because it's kind of flopped over. Uh, so, I mean, wh while I would like to have, you know, it'd be nice to have the, 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 um, the truncheon to, uh, as it originally was originally made, uh, it doesn't really bother me that it's missing the flange because Howard Hill shot it off in the movie. <laughs> Well, it's funny because, um, of course, that could never happen today. Nobody is going to fire arrows at human beings. In fact, I've, all, I've been told many times that even in Civil War movies where there are two lines of, of uh, marksmen firing muskets, they can only shoot one at a time because they're very fearful of, uh, you know, causing harm with a, a round that doesn't quite perform the way it's supposed to be. But, yeah, Howard Hill was a legendary archer, and, of course, uh, uh, Jack Churchill was on on Ivanhoe. Um, I think part of uh, I think part of the, str the the strength of you know the strength of this movie it's evergreen feeling the fact I can watch it over and over again and you and I have talked about this is the power of Nicholas Roja's score. Yes, um, Roja had you know by by then he'd been scoring films for about fifteen years. And he had originally started uh, scoring them in England and then came over to the United States uh, with the production company of uh, Making the Thief of Baghdad. The production of that film was moved to the United States from England right in the middle of shooting because of the danger posed by German bombing, but also because Alexander Corda, who was producing that film, was carrying secret dispatches between Roosevelt and Churchill. And this gave him an excuse to go back and forth. Um, and Roger decided when he, when, he, when he was here, uh, he decided that um, there was much more opportunity here. And rather working for, for Corda, uh, where there's a very limited number of films were being made by Corda, uh, here he would have a, a lot more chances to score different kinds of movies. And in fact, two or three years ago, actually on eBay, I found a, a postcard he had sent to a friend in England shortly after arriving here in, uh, in Hollywood. It's a picture postcard of the, the panorama of Hollywood and just Thing, you know what it's like in this strange you know this, this alien planet that is that is southern california and um but with ivanhoe you know he he had um scored quo Vadis in 1950 
you know, this song came out in 51. And with that, he inaugurated what he called his uh, historical music period, which he did something that no composer really had ever done, is he did a deep, deep study of music of the period and adapted it in whatever surviving uh, melodies ex he could find and, and turn them into uh, uh, themes in his scores. And so Ivanhoe was early in that in that process, but I, it's my it's my favorite of all his scores. It's not his best score, but it, it's my favorite. I'm right with you there. I mean, it's funny because in L.A. back in the '60s, there was a movie show. I believe it was called Theater Nine. It was a uh, uh, on Channel Nine here, and the theme of the show each week was the, the was the main title theme from Ivanhoe. So I was yeah. exposed to that even probably before I even saw Ivanhoe. And I've always found um, it's one of my favorite scores as well. I mean, it probably like you, it's probably my favorite Roja score. And Roja, of course, is all over the map, and would later score Ben Hur seven years later for William Wyler and of course that was a fabulous score as well but there's something there's something about all the different themes I and mean, we were talking earlier about the the realistic uh, the realism of the jousting sequence at Ashby the way it's introduced after um, after Ivanhoe is presented with the jewels by Rebecca allowing him to buy his armor and warhorse it cuts right to Ashby and you have that marvelous trumpeting music and even though trumpeting music is common, it's always around. There's just something very powerful about those Roja trumpets just to start off. Well, Roja wrote wonderful fanfares. I, I think he wrote the best fanfares of any composer ever worked in Hollywood. There's this wonderful texture to them. Uh, he wrote, he wrote uh, so many uh, fanfares for Ivanhoe. There, there are those that didn't even make it into the movie. And I, I, I actually took all the fanfares he wrote. He wrote for Ivanhoe and Knights of the Round Table and Ben Hur and King of Kings, and I put them all on a single CD. It's just nothing but fanfare <laughs> because well, I just that'll, love them. That'll, so get, that'll get you out of bed with a flourish. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I, it's funny. I have a CD clock radio, and that's the disc that's in it. So when so when it's time to get up, that's what I get is fanfares. I used to have a roommate who would play. Um, uh, he would play the theme from Oklahoma. Uh, uh, oh, what a beautiful morning every morning. And I remember getting up to that, but not as much of a fanfare, of course, as as Roja from Ivanhoe. Um, of course, you know, listening, listening to, you know, all of those fanfares, people might think it is it, as peculiar for me to want to listen to those things uh, like, you know, you know, just in isolation, as it was, as it is for the uh, the John MacGyver character in that episode of Twilight Zone, where he likes listen to recordings of battles. Oh right, right. Sounds of sounds and silence. That's yeah. an interesting fifth season episode. I remember it. Yeah, no, I I think with me, uh, film music uh, is the primary reason I love most movies. If the, if the music is even in movies that are not great movies, if the music is terrific, it's just something that sticks with me and wants me to keep it. And of course, when we were young, we would buy the vinyl album soundtrack. And in, very, in fact, the very first soundtrack album I ever bought was Dimitri Tiomkin's uh, soundtrack for the Alamo. Uh, and that was, uh, I, I think that I bought that when I was eight or nine years old. Well, you know, in those days, um, in the, the LP record days, um, at most, you would get maybe 40 minutes of music. 
And I, it, you know, when I was a kid, and I had, you know, I think the first soundtrack album I ever owned was Thunderball. And uh, it took me a long time, even many years, to realize that what's on the on the on the on the record, the, the LP record, isn't all the music that was written for the movie. But I mean, I, I, obviously, they back then they they couldn't, they were not going to issue like three or four disc sets of of a complete score. Nowadays, on CD. You, you can often buy every note of music that was ever written for, for a film. And the great thing about film scores is, and great film scores, is that they're the only element of a movie that can stand on its own, where you can, you know, you listen to it just for the pleasure of listening to it. I mean, you can't do anything else with any other element of a movie and, and, and look at it in isolation. Um, but, but a great film score doesn't just reinforce what's already up on the screen. It tells the audience something that neither the dialogue or images can. And only the really great composers have been able to manage that. And apart from John Williams, I mean, there's pretty much nobody living who, who can do that anymore, who wants to do that. Or, or, who, or you know, producers don't even want that. And that's, that's sad. They just want elaborate orchestrations to kind of fill silences. They don't really understand how their films can be improved by having a great score. Oh, I know. It's, it's interesting because we've talked about this. If you remake these classics, the music is so good. I mean, if you and I are blessed to remake Ivanhoe, which would be a, a lovely thing to do if we could, why would I not use the Roja music? I mean, the Roja music can transcend. I mean, you certainly add some new themes. By the way, speaking of themes, do you have a favorite theme in uh, Ivanhoe? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the main Ivanhoe theme, I mean, it's very, very heroic. It's a very, you know, it's very, very, um, it's a stirring theme. And, but it, 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 one of the things about having themes is that, and what, what, what these themes do is they, they, they grow and they, they evolve as the characters' relationships and the story evolve. Uh, again, that's something only a really great composer can do. And... Um, they, um, you know, the, the contrast between Ivanhoe's theme and the Norman theme, which is also a very, very sturdy theme, but it, and it's, it's not particularly sinister, but it's not, it's not heroic. And then con contrast that with the two themes, the theme for Rebecca and the theme for Rowena. Um, they're different. I mean, the two women's themes are different. I mean, Re Rebecca's is almost heartbreaking and it often sometimes um, segues into like a, a violin uh, figure uh, that, that and, it's, and, and Rebecca's theme is is you know, Hebraic in, in character, in, in character, whereas um, uh, just as we were talking about uh, Rowena, her character is kind of staid and and basically uh, her theme is kind of reflects sort of a mature love, whereas Rebecca's is, is a, a theme that 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 reflects the longing she has for Ivanhoe, something that she can you know, that she can never have. It's, it's, in fact, um, Mr. I, I, a story I read was that um, Aeneas McKenzie, who did the original adaptation of Ivanhoe before Noel Langley wrote the script, argued fairly strenuously with the producers, saying, uh, if, "If this story were truly honest." Rebecca would go off with Ivanhoe at the end of the movie and not Rowena because they really belong together. 
and he was told, no, this is a classic novel and we can't change it to that extent. This may be Hollywood, but uh, we can't, you know, that, that's, that's too much of a change even for Hollywood. It's got to be the way it, it's always been. Yeah, that would be, a, that would have been a little blasphemous to do that. I'm looking at the, um, I guess, uh, <laughs> and you and I have had our quarrels over whether you like Tiomkin or not. You're not a big Tiomkin fan. I'm not. And yet, I think it's probably because in looking at the Oscars that year, Tiomkin beat out Roja for best score. They, High they, Noon, yes. He won for High Noon, which is a terrific score too, but I would say that uh, Ivanhoe is in a class by itself. Just just so everyone knows, uh, Ivanhoe was nominated for three Academy Awards uh, for Best Picture. Well, it lost to The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, which is still mind-boggling. Uh, Best Cinematography, a Freddie Young Cinematography was nominated, and then um, Roja's score was nominated. Uh, they lost all three awards. Well, we should point out that uh, Freddie Young, who, who was a cinematographer, 10 years later would shoot, uh, would be a cinematographer for uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And he photographed most of um, uh, David Lean's big films from uh, from Lawrence through Dr. Zhivago and Ryan's Daughter. I think I think he did Ryan's Daughter. I'd have, I'd have to double check. But he was, he was certainly um, um, Lean's uh, cinematographer of choice during that period. Well, you know, um, I've probably seen Ivanhoe at least 50 times. I never get tired of watching it. I, I always seem like I'm watching it for the first time. Uh, I guess the only thing I wish it had been shot in was CinemaScope. I think it would have been an interesting film to see on the widescreen. But certainly in 1952 uh, parlance, it was quite an epic and, uh, and just beautifully photographed by Freddie Young, as we mentioned, and still plays today. I've, I've seen a number of the Ivanhoe remakes, mostly for television, and they just pale in comparison. Not so much that the performances are bad. There's been good performances. In fact, you mentioned James Mason. James Mason at one point plays Isaac uh, in one of the remakes, but they don't hold a candle to the original. No. Uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would venture that <clears throat> there are only two really great, really terrific Knights in Armor movies. I mean, not including like you know, Alexander Nevsky or you know, something like that, but I mean, Hollywood, Hollywood uh, uh, Knights in Armor movies. One, one is Ivanhoe and the other is El Cid. Right, right. Which is Roja again. Exactly, yes. And some, I mean, the conventional wisdom is that Ben-Hur is Roja's masterpiece. There are some who think that, uh, that El Cid is, is the, uh, the greatest score he ever wrote. I mean, it's like, they're just so exquisite that it's just a matter of one's personal um, sensibilities and taste that, that you know, to make you. Well, he, he's, you know, one or the other. he's so, uh, you know, so um, interesting in terms of the variety of types of scores, because I, I like a lot of his later work. In fact, one of his last scores, if not one of his last scores, or the last one he did was uh, Time After Time. I uh, did a couple after that, but yeah, Time After Time. It's just such a terrific little movie. Uh, movie, and then of course he did this the score for uh, Taxi Driver, which uh, no, that's Bernard Herman. Oh, that's Bernard Herman. Okay, so it was it, it was time after time. Uh, what was his last score? Um, it was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. <laughs> Very appropriate with that. <laughs> well, this has been great. Uh, excuse the cars drag racing outside my door here. Uh, maybe Ben can clean that up.
Um, we have been chatting with my good friend Avi Hearn about one of our favorite movies of all time. If you have not seen <laughs> Ivanhoe, I hope we haven't given you any spoilers. It's it's such a rich uh, portrait of Hollywood filmmaking of its era. I mean, MGM did not spare the expense on this one, even though they were saving money by shooting in England. Uh, it's got a terrific cast. Listen for the Roja music. If you can pick up the soundtrack, it's available now. The full score is available. Right, Avi? Yes. The, the original tracks, I, that one may not be in, in print anymore, but the re-recording uh, is, is very much in print. It's an excellent recording on the, on the Intrado label. You have been watching, or you, excuse me, I always say that, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Thank you so much for listening tonight, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.